If you turn to your Bibles, to the book of Jude, and while you're turning there, I'll give you a brief introduction. My name is Graham, as Don said. I've had the privilege of attending here with my wife and our three kids for about four and a half years. And when Andrew sent a text a number of months ago asking if I would be available to preach, I said, yes, I would love to do that. And so it's my privilege and my uh, humble duty to prepare the Word of God for you today. So if you found the book of Jude, it's just a, a page or two before the book of Revelation. The book of Jude is one chapter, but it's a loaded book. To, to adequately deal with this, you need at least 25 sermons. We're going to do this in one today, so we're not going to go very deep. This is going to be a wave-top tour, so to speak. The theme of the book of Jude is how to be faithful among false believers. And so what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to read the text, you follow along, and uh, then once we've gone through most of it, I'm going to start at the beginning and we're going to hit a few wave tops as we go. Hopefully that uh, it'll bless your heart as it's blessed mine in my study. Verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding only themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, 
malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the, con- the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, saving others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And we'll finish the rest of it at the end. So in verse 1, Jude identifies himself as a servant. And the Greek word there is actually slave. It carries with it, though, the sense of a slave by choice or a willing servant. And we'll see this backed up in Titus 2, verse 14, and Exodus 21, verse 6, where it talks about this, an individual who wanted to be a slave, because that happened occasionally. They would take him to the door, and they would pierce his ear with an awl into the doorpost, and the person who wished to be a slave would be a slave for life to the individual to whom he was indentured. So this, that is what Jude, Jude identifies himself as. This is a willing slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to be making a lot of references to other passages today. Some of them may be coming up on the slide behind me. Uh, if you wish for notes, I'll be able to supply them to you later if you wish. Jude says the letter is written to those who are called. And there's a couple of points I want to p- make here. They are... Bi- called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. First, when God calls a person, He calls them with the purpose of conforming them to the image of His Son. We read that in Romans 8, verse 28 and 29, which says, And we know that all things work together for those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The second thing we need to know about the called is that their calling is permanent and unchanging. And again, if we look back at Paul in the letter to the Romans, 11 verse 29, he says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable could be translated without repentance. And it tells us that when God calls us, He never suddenly changes His mind and uncalls us. We who have exercised saving faith in Jesus Christ are forever His. Jude also says that we are kept or preserved for Jesus Christ. And this means to keep by means of guarding. To get a picture of what this means, think back to the account of Peter's escape from prison in Acts chapter 12. Peter was kept in prison. Herod had captured Peter because he had just executed James and saw that that pleased the Jewish leaders. So then he proceeded to capture Peter and Peter was kept in the prison in Jerusalem, and he was guarded by soldiers, okay? He was kept in there. Obviously, it didn't work. The angels woke him up, opened the doors of the prison. Peter walked out. Once he figured out what was going on, he left, and it didn't end well for the guards, but you can follow that more in uh, Acts chapter 12. 
The point is that they were carefully guarding, they were keeping Peter in the prison. And that's the same way that we are kept for Jesus Christ. He is keeping us by guarding. And we'll see that again later in the book. As we move on to verse 3, Jude says that he's eager to write about our common salvation, but he found it more necessary and more urgent to write about a write to his readers to urge them to contend for the faith. And the Greek word for contend is the word from which we get agonize or agony. We've all heard that word at least once. But in the Greek, there's a little prefix in front of the word agonize that strengthens the word. So instead of just contending, you know, instead of just an agony of a fight, this is like a really agonizing. And Jude doesn't just call this faith. It's not just faith as the world would have faith. This is the faith. It's a, there's a definitive article in front of it. And one commentator writes that our faith is the whole body of revealed truth as contained in the scriptures. This faith has been once for all delivered to the saints, Jude says. And the Greek verb tense indicates that once the entire unit of scripture was delivered to us, right here, there was no material added or subtracted in the original texts. God is not giving us any new revelation to anyone today that is not contained in the Bible, as we have it. It is complete, 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, and it is 100% God-inspired, and we read that from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Jude gives the reason for why we need to be contending in verse 4. He says, certain people have crept in unnoticed, and this is a a really unique turn of phrase. The people that he's talking about can be men or women. The, the Greek word is uh, anthropos, and it's not uh, gender specific. So when you f- hear false teachers, be aware. You're not listening for one or the other. It's open season on either of them. That's going to come up in just a second too. Crept in, and this was an interesting study as I looked into it. It means to settle in alongside or to lodge stealthily, to creep in unawares. And being a hunter myself and knowing that there's a number of hunters in the the congregation here, I thought this would be a uh, a good way of describing this. When you're out hunting, and we happened to be hunting last night, uh, the idea is not to see how far away you can get from from the animal that you're hunting, right? We're not going out there in, well, in some places, I guess you do in Saskatchewan, but in in BC here, you're not wearing blaze orange and running out there with bells and bullhorns announcing what you're trying to do, right? The idea is to get as close as you can to your quarry as quietly as you can, and the results are usually lethal if you can pull that off. That's what the idea is when it says crept in unawares. Peter warns about these kind of people. In 2 Peter 2, verses 1 to 3, Paul talked about it to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 29, and Paul talked to Timothy again about it in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. Now, these people have crept in unawares to us who are in the church, to the believers that Jude was addressing, 
But Jude assures his readers that these individuals certainly have not escaped the notice of God. Their judgment was predicted long ago. And Isaiah talks about that. Jesus talks about that in Matthew. And Peter talks about that. And we've I've already uh, referenced that in first, Second Peter 2. He identifies some of the characteristics of these false believers, false teachers, in the second half of chapter, or verse 4. He says these are ungodly people. And they are impious or irreverent. They don't respect the God that we serve. Another characteristic of them is that they have a tendency to contort or twist the freedom that we have into a license for immorality. Verse 4 uses the word sensuality. And it means promiscuous or unprincipled in sexual matters. You might hear uh, an argument like this. I can do whatever I want because we are living under grace. Another way of saying that would be, Jesus came to free us from the law. And that he did. But not in the context of freeing us to do whatever we want. Romans 6 Verses 1 and 2 say it this way. What then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? John the Apostle in 1 John also supports this principle when he says that those who are children of God have a new nature that makes it impossible for them to continue to practice living in sin. If a profession of faith is made and there is continued habitual sin in a person's life and no fruit of repentance, it leaves the profession of faith to question. This does not mean that we're expected to live sinless perfection in our lives, but it does mean that we need to be making steady progress in our journey toward Christ-likeness. We need to use all of our effort, but still depend on all of His grace. In verses 5 to 7, Jude uses three examples to support his, uh, his point of these false believers. The first example is the children of Israel as God led them out of Egypt. They continually disobeyed God and refused to enter the promised land. We see that in Numbers 14. And they did this even after all the provisions and the miracles God had performed on their behalf. Jude's second example is those of the angels who rebelled against God. Angels were created to worship, serve, and honor God. But when Satan rebelled and was cast out of heaven, a third of the angels joined him and were cast out as well. There is no repentance possible for the angels. They have a one-time opportunity to make a choice. They made theirs, or at least a third of them did. And some of them serve Satan as demons some of them are held in chains of bondage, as Jude says here. The third example that Jude uses is that of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we are all familiar with that example. In these three examples, God executed judgment on a nation, a group of spiritual beings, and a society for their rebellion and their wickedness. And Jude then draws us to his conclusion that God is able to and will bring these deceptive impostors to assure judgment in his time. Verse 8 
in Jude says that these people rely on their dreams. Their doctrine is not rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word, but instead it is the result of their own ideas and their own imagination. They are unstable and they're blown about by every wind of doctrine. We might see a parallel to that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. And Paul warns against those who would follow their own, uh, their own ideas, their own theories in Colossians 2, 8 to 10. It says that they defile the flesh, they reject authority. And authority can be a dirty word in our society, in our culture today. But it is actually a divine institution. And it's just some big words that mean that God invented the way that some people are in charge and some people are supposed to listen and obey within the limits that God has prescribed. These false teachers only know the things of the world. Moving on. In verse 10. And there's only a few things that they actually know. They know the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We get from John, 1 John 2, verse 16. In contrast to that, Peter in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. These false believers are pursuing them rather than abstaining from them. He goes on to say in verse 11, Woe to them! And follows with three rapid-fire examples, as is his, his typical style here, of judgment and, um, on, on these individuals. Judgment on those who have uh, abandoned the faith. He says, They walked in the way of Cain. What was Cain's sin? We think of Cain and Abel, and we think, well, Cain's sin was to murder Abel, and that's, that was certainly the first murder. But Cain's sin was to think that he could get right with God in his own way. Abel brought a sacrifice, and Cain brought a sacrifice, you'll remember. Abel bought, brought a, a lamb from his flock. Cain brought vegetables, the fruit of the ground. And that was certainly a sacrifice. It was certainly an offering. But when God prescribed the sacrifice, it was a blood sacrifice. We see the precedent for that when God clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of animals. Something else had to die, and Cain thought he could do his own thing and provide an offering of of vegetables and fruits. The second example is that of Balaam, and we'll remember him as the man whose donkey spoke to him in Numbers 22 to 25 and also Numbers 31. Balaam couldn't curse Israel. This is just a summary. You'll have to get the whole thing, and don't forget to read Numbers 31 in this because it provides the second half of the story. Balaam couldn't curse Israel, so he came up with a plan to entice Israel into sexual immorality and idol worship with the women of Moab. Balaam's sin was to accept money because the king of Moab couldn't pay him to curse Israel, so Balaam said, well, I'll figure out a way try this. He accepted money to deceive God's people into sinning. And Korah is the third example that Jude uses. It's found in Numbers chapter 16, if you want to look up there later. 
God punished Korah and his followers for rebelling against Moses in a unique way. Korah and his, his group were kind of separated from the children of Israel. God told everybody else to move away from them. And then the earth opened up underneath Korah and his group of individuals. Everything that they had and owned fell into that hole, and then it closed up over top of them. That was a new thing. And you can read that quote in, uh, in Numbers 16. Jude draws two par significant parallels here. First, that these teachers reject that the authority of God has placed over them, just as Korah did. And second, God's judgment on these false teachers is going to be swift and unmistakable. In verses 12 to 19, there's a few points I want to make. Jude goes into the character of these false teachers. And the word picture in verse 12, some of your Bibles, if you've got a new King James, it'll say these are spots in your love feasts. And that's pretty good. If you're wearing a white shirt and you wear, get a pen leak in your pocket and it creates an ink stain, that's a spot. It's sort of permanent. But the Greek is a better, uh, translates it better into the ESV when it talks about hidden reefs. And I'm not a river boater, but I know there's a lot of people here that have river boated. And there are places in some of the local channels here on the Peace River and on the Pine where there, there are large rock shelves that are just a few inches below the surface. And so if you're cruising up there in your river boat and you don't see them, it can mess up your day and really mess up your boat. And that's the idea that Jude is talking about here. You don't see these reefs, but they can cause incredible amount of damage if you're not paying attention, just like these individuals can. Remember, they sneaked in unawares, they crept in unnoticed, and this is the damage that they can do. They can shipwreck your faith. The next thing Jude says is, is that these are shepherds feeding themselves. And we might think, well, what's the problem with that? Shepherds have a certain amount of privilege to take some benefit from the flock, right? But in Scripture, the shepherd's job is always to take care of the sheep. We, uh, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to do that in Acts 20.28. 20, Peter encourages the elders that he's writing to to shepherd the flock of God in 1 Peter 5 verse 2. And in our family devotions through Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 to 4, God blasts the leaders of Israel for being shepherds who are only taking care of their own needs and not looking after the needs of those who were under them. These false teachers would appear as shepherds, but what they're doing is they're feeding themselves. Jude says they are waterless clouds. And after a summer like we had last summer, where it was super dry, we can get an idea of what this is like. They promise, there's a promise of fulfillment, just like a cloud has a promise of rain, but what they bring is disappointment and emptiness. He talks about fruitless trees in late autumn. And I want to read what Jesus says in Matthew 7 regarding this. He says, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? That's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is, of course not. 
Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. They don't bear spiritual fruit, these individuals that Jude is talking about, because they don't have the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. And we'll see that later on in verse 19. So they are fruitless and they're uprooted. And that's what Jude means when he says they're twice dead. He identifies them as wild ways of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. And as I read that, the Greek word for shame is actually a plural word, as in there's more than one shame. It's shames. And if you follow contemporary Christian culture much, especially recently, you have to have seen at least a few of the scandals that have rocked some high-profile churches and ministries over the last number of years. Not only high-profile, for a while I was keeping track of a number of individuals whom I knew personally who had shipwrecked their faith and caused great shame to themselves personally and shame to the Word of God in their, uh, in their disobedience. In verse 13, Jude uses one more example from nature, and I want to make a point on it. He calls them wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And let's think about stars for a minute. When I'm working in the, in the oil field in the, in the summertime, I do a lot of navigating to different sites. And most of my work is done in daylight, so I don't get the benefit of stars. But Google Earth and on-star navigation are amazing things. Anyways, back when Jude was speaking, they were, were dealing, stars were a use of uh, navigation. You could find your way. And even now, if people want to find out where north is, you look for the north star, right? Jude calls these guys wandering stars. They are not fixed in their location, as normal stars are from our perspective here on earth. But they are useless for navigation. They move around, and eventually they burn out, just like a comet. We've all seen what we call shooting stars, and it'll appear like a streak across the sky, and then it goes out, and you don't see it anymore. And that's what Jude is saying here. It's a wandering star. They're useless for light. They're useless for navigation. And if you try to follow them, you're going to get lost yourself. In case we thought that this level of apostasy was only happening in our day and all the way back to Jude's day, we need to look a little bit farther back. And Jude 14 talks about this. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. And I won't read the whole thing again. But as in my research, the seventh generation from Adam, you think about how early that is to the beginning of the earth. And there was a huge amount of apostasy then. Enoch calls, and remember that he was the one who walked with God. He prophesied against attitudes in people like this. In my research, Enoch was actually alive when Adam was still alive. He would have been able to have first-hand contact with the first man. I encourage you to do a little bit of research on that and do a, a study on how the, the first number of generations overlapped each other. It's a fascinating study. 
But many of those generations would have known or had at least had access to what it was like before the fall. In Jude 16, he describes them as grumblers, malcontents, following their own desires. And in contrast to that, they're grumbling, they're complaining. Paul talks about being thankful, doing everything without complaining or grumbling in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, and also chapter 4. In verse 17, Jude changes the direction and the trajectory of his letter a little bit. He says, instead of all of these uh, negative aspects of these false teachers, he says, but you. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of our apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to make a direct quote from 2 Peter chapter 2 and 3. He calls these individuals mockers or scoffers. And I've got a few notes on this one. We don't have time to go into the into all the characteristics of a scoffer or a mocker. But in Proverbs, it, t- it tells us, in Proverbs 9, uh, 9 verses 7 and 8, Hebrews, or sorry, Hebrews, uh, Proverbs 13 verses 1, 14 verse 6, 15 verse 12, and there are lots more. This is just a short list of how these individuals, these scoffers, are a proud, unteachable, and uncorrectable group of individuals. Lost my place. Because of the overruling drive these individuals have to satisfy their own evil desires in 19, especially their desire for what God has forbidden, Jude describes them as being sensual. And this is directly opposite of what Paul commands us in Galatians 5, 22 to 25, to walk in the Spirit. We're all familiar with this passage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I'll skip to the end. He says, but those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. These individuals cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit if the Holy Spirit has not taken up residency in their lives. Romans 8 verse 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So why would we be surprised when these individuals aren't uh, reflecting the Spirit of God or reflecting the fruits of the Spirit? Simple solution, because they don't have the Spirit. In contrast, we as believers are commanded to be being kept in the Word of God. And this comes from verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And Jude gives us three ways that we can do this. Verse 20 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. That's the first one. How do we do that? How do we build ourselves up in our faith? The way we do it is we strengthen our faith 
through the reading and meditation on the Word of God. We find the promises that God has kept in the past and His faithfulness to that. We look at the promises that God has given us for the future, and we bring both of those together and strengthen our faith in the trial that we face in, the current, in our present uh, situation. The second thing that Jude says is praying in the Holy Spirit. And Paul describes this praying in the Spirit both in Romans 8, verses 26 and 27, and also in Ephesians 6, verse 18. It's praying according to the will of God in our lives. And is asking God to put His desires in our heart. You might find that in Psalms 37. The third way that we are kept in the love of God is to look forward to the promises of eternal life that we have through Jesus. We need to keep focused on the goal so that we don't lose heart and become discouraged. When we keep our mind focused on heavenly things, we'll find that we serve our sin nature less and we'll live a more pure and holy life, 1 John 3 verse 3 says. As Jude wraps up his letter, he gives three more uh, three responses to the individuals that we have discussed here. He says, and have mercy on those who doubt, in verse 22. And think of John's account of the apostle Thomas in John chapter 20. We read that a few weeks ago. What was Jesus' response to Thomas the apostle, or Thomas the disciple at that point? When, when Thomas said, uh, unless I see the evidence... I'm not going to believe. That's more or less a paraphrase. Jesus didn't condemn Thomas, but he provided the, the evidence that Thomas needed to believe. Some people need to be gently taught the truth so that they can be drawn back into full fellowship with Christ. There is a second group, however, who needs a more desperate measure. 23 says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. There are a second group who, have already, who are already well along in their acceptance of the lies of these false teachers that we've been talking about, just about deceived, and they're in danger of hell if they don't believe, and possibly severe judgment if they are believers. The third group of individuals that need, need to be handled with much more care and caution. He says, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. We still need to demonstrate mercy to them. But we need to be careful so that we're not drawn in to the error that they're already fully engaged in. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken by any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We have to watch ourselves so that we don't get caught up in their error because it's very easy to do. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 talks about this. It says, Therefore let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Not quite. It says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There's a difference there. If we think that we're uh, firm in our faith, we need to be careful. We need to be constantly examining ourselves. For those of us who believe, however, our confidence and our hope rests in the Lord Jesus Christ, who saved us and also guards us from our guards us, keeps us for eternal life and peace with God. 
Jude closes with one of the most beautiful uh, doxologies. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, right? This is the one who is keeping us for salvation. This is the one to whom we are, for whom we are kept, guarded. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To thee only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have taken a kind of a 10,000 foot view of the book of Jude this morning. And Lord, I pray that this would have given us greater appreciation for who you are, for what you do, for the need we have to be discerning in our lives for the need we have to study your word and be committed to you. Lord, help us to keep ourselves in the faith. Strengthen our faith, Lord. Help us to be merciful to those who doubt. Help us to give, see the opportunities you provide for us to be a witness for you and to be merciful to others. And we will give you the glory because the praise is yours. In Jesus' name, amen.